Our sermon text for the morning is the last three verses in the 10th chapter of John's gospel, verse 40 through 42, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 40. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. The word of God. Let's ask for his help. Lord, we do need your help. Last week we saw that the leadership of your people, the scribes and the Pharisees, those who were supposed to be a light to your people, to teach your word to your people, to wait on your promises to come, they thought your son was a blasphemer. Lord, we need your help or we'll do the same. So we pray that you would open eyes, soften hearts, open ears, make minds ready to listen and to bend and to conform. And we pray that you would make hearts ready to worship, primed, spring-loaded, tenderized, prepared to worship Jesus. Pray in his name, amen. About 250 years ago, the Revolutionary War happened in this country. So think the 4th of July, no taxation without representation, the Boston Tea Party, George Washington, all that. Dr. Benjamin Church was on the side of the Americans, one of the physicians. And he is a man who goes down in history one way or the other. Let me tell you about him. He'd written a letter and had sent it by a lady courier and the woman was intercepted by George Washington's Continental Army. They interrogated the woman, and she, after some interrogation, admitted that the letter had been written by Dr. Benjamin Church. And the letter was encoded. It was not easily readable. Every letter had a substitute for some other letter. So you couldn't read it, but it was decoded after a few days, and it was found to have a lot of secret military intel, the kinds of things the Americans did not want the British to know. And the woman courier was taking that letter to the British. So the letter was, it seemed, in effect, the letter of a traitor, the letter of a spy. But Dr. Church was not a very likely candidate to be a spy. He was a model citizen. He was Harvard educated. He had a solid tenure in loyalty to the Continental Army and to the colonies. But when they apprehended him, he quickly admitted authorship. There was no denying it. He admitted it. But he had another explanation for why the letter was written. He said that the letter was a ruse. It was a trick. It was meant to influence the British to give the Americans better terms of accommodation. And later he would say, well, maybe the intent was foolish. It wasn't the wisest thing to do. But my goal was to help the Americans. I was trying to trick the British into overestimating American strength. I was bluffing. And he said, listen to this quote, I can honestly appeal to heaven for the purity of my intentions. I have served faithfully. I have never swerved from my duty through fear or temptation. 
And as he's standing there making his defense before Washington's war council, not a single one of them believed him. They thought he was lying through his teeth. So Congress fired him. He was the American Surgeon General, and uh, they sent him back to Massachusetts where he was from, and they gave the House of Representatives there in Massachusetts the discretionary power to do with him what they saw fit. So again, trial number two, he's standing there before the House of Representatives, of which he was one of the elected delegates. He served there in the House of Representatives. The place is full, spectators have come, armed guards, armed guards, pardon me, are everywhere. The letter is produced, the decryption is led for everybody, or is read, pardon me, for everybody to hear, and he's questioned. And for more than an hour, Dr. Church parried accusations, defending himself, this justification and that. He invoked the Magna Carta, habeas corpus, and his own pure heart. He claimed, actually, that he had refused payment. The British had offered him payment. He refused it, claiming to be that loyal. He said, how could I have conducted a criminal correspondence with the British if the letter hadn't actually reached them? He's trying every angle he can possibly get to. William Tudor said about him while he was on trial, church appeared as spotless as an angel of light. Things are going south, they're headed somewhere bad. That's how things are going in John's gospel. Just the last two weeks, we've seen the Jews try to stone Jesus and try to arrest him. The Jewish leadership, the leaders of God's people in the place where God made his name dwell in the temple, they think Jesus is a sham. They think he's a blasphemer. But what about the other party? The other perspective. That's where our sermon text picks up today. Last week, we had the prosecution. They make their case. And this week, the defense. He makes his case. What will the defense be? What kind of defense do they make? John the writer uses a flashback moment to John the Baptist from chapter one. That's his case. So look there in the text. Look at verse 40 of chapter 10. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. So Jesus leaves the place, Jerusalem, where there was an arrest warrant out for him. They were trying to seize him. He crosses the Jordan River, goes to the other side, to probably Bethany, the same place where John the Baptist had been previously, and he remains there. And in verse 41, you can see a bunch of people follow him out there, and they're singing a different tune than what was going on in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a place where Jesus was gonna be stoned, but out here on the other side of the Jordan, these people, lots of them, they're saying something totally different. They believe in him. And they're probably reminded about John the Baptist because John the writer points out that that's exactly where they are, the same place where John had been baptizing. They remember the testimony of John and they say, John didn't do any signs, but everything John said about this Jesus, it's all true. So how do I know that John the writer intends to bring your mind back to John the Baptist. Well, he, he tells us everything that John the Baptist said was true, but also I'm gonna to read to you chapter 10, verse 40, and then I'm gonna to read to you chapter one, verse 28. So chapter 10 and then chapter one, and I want you to listen to how similar they are as my suggestion that John means for us to go back to a particular place in his gospel. Here's chapter 10, verse 40. 
And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. Chapter one. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Really similar language. Now in chapter one, the glory of Christ, remember the prologue and all the things that are happening, his glory is being talked about, presented without opposition. There's no opposition yet in chapter one. Things are looking good. But by the time you progress all the way to chapter 10, now there's opposition. Now there's problems. There's a lot of people who are saying something opposite than what you heard all those times in chapter one. So John the writer sets out to say, hang on, hang on. I know that this is not looking so good, but let me remind you what it was that you read earlier in chapter one. And now look at all these people who are still faithful to that same message. The unbelief of the Jewish leaders who want to stone Jesus is not the last word. It's a lot like our day, isn't it? Don't we need that kind of encouragement? The kind of things that you hear said about Jesus, the way at your workplace and with your neighbors, his name is drugged through the mud. Don't we need this kind of encouragement? The things that you hear about him are not the last word. The testimony contained in the Bible is the truth. That's what John the writer is doing here as he hearkens back to John the Baptist. So I'm gonna begin by making three observations about John the Baptist's ministry in general. Not his words, but characteristics about his ministry in general. Observation number one. When John the Baptist began his ministry, he did, as the text says, no signs, no miracles. There was no authentication by supernatural power, no proof. All his listeners had to take him at his word. They had heard, but they hadn't seen because Jesus hadn't yet come, he hadn't done any signs, he hadn't taught the people with that authority that was magnetic and irresistible that's described by the the gospel writers. None of that had happened yet when John the Baptist first came preaching. But now later here in chapter 10, they've gotten to see some things. Jesus has come, he's doing as John lays out for us all the signs, they're listening to him teach. Now they've gotten to see that it was, as it says, all true. Now you guys know probably the old adage, the proof is in the pudding. You've heard that before. What it means is you see the bowl of pudding. It looks good, but you can't really know if it's good until you taste it, right? The proof of the pudding is in the taste. You've got to test it out for yourself. Well, here we are in chapter 10, and these people, having seen Jesus, had tasted. They'd seen, right? Now they have proof. But John did no sign at first. He's not around by the time we get to chapter 10. His ministry was one not of signs, but of words, of prophecy from God. That's our second observation. There's there's no sign. Round two, this is remarkable because, as I said last week, Jesus' ministry is presented to us on the framework of signs in John's gospel. And I said last week that those signs are meant to authenticate his message. They're proof that Jesus is who he says he is and that God is with him. That's what they're for. It's also remarkable that the Baptist did no signs because of the way that many of the Old Old Testament prophets did signs. So if you imagine Moses, the first great prophet 
Think of the miracles that he did, the 10 plagues in Egypt and the way that God met with him face to face out on Mount Sinai and he struck the rock and water gushed out and bread and quail came miraculously from God. The prophets oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes had signs, but the greatest of all the prophets, John the Baptist, had no signs, no miracles. All John the Baptist had was a holy life and an earnest attention to the word of God and a truth-saturated message for the people. That's all he had. And God used him. So Jason stood here a minute ago talking about testimony out of his mouth. Do you have the same thing that John the Baptist had? You don't have miracles. I don't think anybody here is doing miracles. But do you have a holy life? Do you have a certain kind of character that God is forming in you? And do you have a Bible? Do you have the word of God? God can use us. He can use you in the same way that he used John the Baptist. Third observation, final observation about his ministry in general. Even though he had no sign, he did come doing something in addition to words, and it was what you know to be true. He came baptizing. He's John the Baptist, after all. Now, his baptism wasn't miraculous, but it did communicate something. So the signs communicate something, and so did John's baptism. We read about it back in chapter one, but that's been some months from now. They communicated something. Now, the signs that Jesus did and the signs that the Old Testament prophets did said, in effect, God is with me. They directed attention to himself. It was a self-directing, with holy motives, self-directing authentication. The signs prove God is working through me. But John the Baptist's baptism did not point to himself. It's one of the most striking things about the Baptist as you read through John's gospel. It was not a sign for himself, but it was a sign toward Jesus. So I don't want you to turn there, but I want you to listen to me for a second. When the Jews come and they question John the Baptist in John chapter one, they're sent to find out who he is. Who are you? That's what they ask him. And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They want to know who he is, and he's pointing away from himself. And they say, okay, well, if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? No. Are you this? No. Well, who are you? Why are you baptizing if you're not any of these people? He's just deflecting and deflecting and deflecting away from himself. He says later in chapter 3, I'm just the best man. I'm at the wedding. Yeah, yeah, I'm at the wedding. But the groom is here. That's who needs to get the bride. I'm not trying to get in the middle of the aisle I'm trying to get the bride to the groom. It's not about me. But I said his baptism does communicate something. It communicates not about himself, but about Jesus. What does it communicate? How does it work? John's baptism made Jesus known through the coming of the Holy Spirit. Here's the way it works. John says it really plainly. If you go back and read through chapter 1. John tells them that when he was commissioned by God as a prophet, he was told, you're gonna see the Holy Spirit descend on one person and remain on him. When you see that, John the Baptist, you're gonna know that's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And you might say, baptizes in the Holy Spirit? Man, if you're a visitor with us today, you might have no idea what that means. 
and that's okay. It's all a reference back to the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit had been promised to come. God had been promising for centuries, millennia, that he would send his Holy Spirit, something different would happen, that there would be a new covenant. And in that new covenant, not like the Mount Sinai covenant, you could call it, in the new one, the Holy Spirit would come. It would be different. And there would be a Messiah who would usher it all in, and God called all that the last days. So when John says, he's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, what he is saying in effect is, the one who's bringing in the last days, the one who's bringing in that new covenant, he's doing it as he ushers in the age of the Spirit, the Spirit's presence. And John the Baptist, you're gonna know he's finally here when you see the Spirit come on him as the fountainhead of giving the Holy Spirit to other people. And that's what John saw happen. You can go back and you can read those pages in John chapter one. He sees the Holy Spirit descend and remain on Jesus and he says, this is John's whole ministry. There he is, that's him. So John is like a a great high hill. You're going to see the sunrise. You know you're gonna be able to see it better if you get on top of that hill. And then you look from the hill over to the sunrise and you see its glory. John is the hill. Nobody goes for the hill. You go for the sunrise, but John helps you see him better. That's what his ministry is all about. Well, that's John's ministry in general, a signless, word-oriented, holy life, this is the Messiah who came kind of ministry. But our text in John chapter 10 mentions in specific John's words, everything he said was true. This will be the second half of our sermon, John the Baptist's words. What did John say about Jesus? Well, I mentioned that John the writer encourages us to go back. The leaders were rejecting Jesus. This other group is remembering John the Baptist's words and believing in him. The prosecution, the defense. So we're going to go now. I'm going to give you six highlights of John the Baptist prophetic ministry from John chapter 1, please turn there, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. I'll give you a minute to turn to John chapter 1, nine chapters back, verse 19 through 34. I'm going to pick up reading in John chapter 1, verse 19, and I'll read through verse 23. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So he hasn't said anything about himself yet. Here he goes. He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. I mentioned the way that this group of people, they they gotta know who John the Baptist is. They know he's out there in the wilderness, they know he's baptizing, they know all Jerusalem, as it says elsewhere, are going out to him, big crowds, The people who sent this delegate, the Jews in Jerusalem, they can't imagine somebody attracting all that attention if they're not attracting it for themselves. 
It's got to be all about John. We've got to know who this guy is. We have to know. We've seen perhaps trees on the edge of a forest, and they're not symmetrical. They don't do that. If you go and you look, they grow, and then whichever way the sun passes by, they grow that way. They grow, they grow towards the sun, and they do not care what else they overshadow. One tree will overshadow another, and it will die. will have no sunlight. They do not care. they got to get into the glory of the sun themselves. That's how they think John the Baptist is. They think he's got to be one of those people like us, perhaps, who's got to have the glory for himself. But John says, no. I'm the one that God talked about in Isaiah chapter 40. I'm here to make straight this way in the wilderness. I'm getting things ready for someone to come. Now it says there, make straight the way of the Lord. Now we're used to hearing Jesus referred to as the Lord as we read our New Testaments. That's normal. That's right. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you go back to the Old Testament where this passage comes from, the word is the tetragrammaton. You've heard it. Y-H-W-H, the personal name of God that was introduced in Exodus chapter 3, I am. John the Baptist is saying, that text in Isaiah chapter 40, make a way ready for Yahweh to come. He's coming. I'm getting things ready for him. He's going to be here soon. I'm that guy. I'm getting things ready. He's coming. Who's coming? God himself is coming. Point number two, words. Number two, John spoke of the worthy one in the midst of the crowds. That's verse 25 through 27. He said, I'm baptizing because there's somebody coming after me. He's in your midst. He's already here. He might be standing next to you. Quote, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He's already here. He's not coming like the Old Testament prophet said in those last days. John the Baptist is saying the last days are here and the Messiah is here and he's among you now. Now, this is subversive. He's telling the people who are in charge of Israelite worship that the Messiah has come and he's among them and they don't know him. You do not know. They don't recognize him. They've missed him. They would not have liked this kind of talk, I don't suspect. He's telling them that they're like Joseph's brothers who would, at the end of that story, stand there before Joseph, not knowing it was him, and ask for mercy not knowing who it was that was in their midst. He's saying that they are like them. And John tells them that he's not missable. Jesus isn't missable because of what he says there in verse 27. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's not really missable. We don't untie sandals, right? That's not really the way it works. But the idea is that John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to get on the ground at the feet of the Messiah and do the nasty, dirty job of taking his shoes off. It's a lot like when Jesus later would wash the feet of his disciples. It's the same idea. So this 
this one, the one with that kind of worth, is in your midst and you don't know him. You haven't recognized him. Number three, verse 29, John tells them that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Look at verse 29. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see John in the wilderness, the wild man with the camel's hair and the leather belt around his waist. He's dirty and he points and he says, there he is right there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's this about? This Lamb of God who takes away sins. It's foreign from so much of our culture. You don't hear this when you turn on the evening news. Well, you remember the story of the Passover when God came to rescue his people out of Egypt and bring them out to worship him. The 10 plagues, the 10th one is the Passover when God will come and he'll bring death and destruction. Every firstborn male will be put to death unless anyone who takes a lamb slays it, sheds its blood, puts it on the posts of the door. When I see that blood, when I see that innocent shed blood, my wrath will be stayed and I'll pass over. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and stays God's wrath from his people. Or the Day of Atonement. You remember the Day of Atonement from Leviticus chapter 16, commemorating the Passover, the shedding of blood and the forgiveness of sins? Maybe the scapegoat from that chapter. Have you thought recently of the scapegoat? Have you thought recently of how Jesus is your scapegoat? Verse 21 reads, Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. God had been promising for millennia that he would make an end of sin. And he would do it by what's called atonement. An innocent victim would die as a substitute in place of the guilty. And all those lambs, all those goats, all those beasts that were slain only represented what God would do in the future. Imagine a lamb for a minute. That's a young sheep. They're small, they're fluffy. They were supposed to be spotless in the Old Testament. Don't give me a defective one. Give me one that's right in every single way. It's pure, it's perfect and I want you to slit its throat and shed its blood because that's how it is when God exercises justice and God promised he would do it through a substitute. The lambs could forgive nothing, but later a lamb was coming, innocent, pure, without fault and full of goodness, untainted, holy, in all of his ways, the man Jesus, and John the Baptist looks and he says, That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you're trusting in Christ today, 
what that lamb did is enough. It would do God a dishonor for you not to believe that. What that innocent lamb did does take away the sins of the world and your sins. Number four, verse 30, John the Baptist said Jesus was the one who was from of old or eternal. John says there in verse 30, reading from the NASB, the 95 version, he says that Jesus had a higher rank than me. The NIV says something similar. He was a man who has surpassed me. Or the NASB 20, a man who has proved to be my superior. They all say the same kind of thing. John's saying, he's greater than me. I'm not the point, I'm the pregame. The main attraction is coming in a person that exceeds me infinitely. He's a higher rank than me. And John gives a particular reason, in this case, for why Jesus has a higher rank than John, and it's that he existed before me. That might not shock you. You might think Jesus was older than John. He was not. You may remember that John the Baptist and Jesus were from the same extended family. They were born around the same time, about three months apart. Which one was conceived and born first? The Baptist, making him older. So from a human vantage point, John the Baptist was older by just a little than Jesus. And John says, no, no, he existed before me. Or like the prophet Micah in the Old Testament put it, his goings forth have been from of old. So like Jacob and Esau, the older, the Baptist, would serve the younger, Jesus. He's eternal. John is making shocking claim after shocking claim to claim that a man who a crowd could see with their eyes was eternal would have been Shocking. Some would go on to say he's a blasphemer. And some would go on to say everything John said about him is true. Number five, the one identified by and with the Spirit, verse 31 through 33. I mentioned this already. John the Baptist, he's waiting for confirmation from heaven so that the Messiah will be identified. I just want to point out at this point that this kind of bestowal of the heavenly of the Holy Spirit, pardon me, from heaven, fits into an Old Testament pattern. It's not the first time something like this has happened. In the Old Testament, men receive this unique anointing from the Holy Spirit to do a particular job, whether to rule as king like Saul or to prophesy. They were given the Holy Spirit to do a job. I'm gonna give you one example from Numbers chapter 11. Don't turn there. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also, he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him, the spirit, on, upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other, Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. 
Now, they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp, those with the Spirit, right? It's almost done. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, listen to how he talks. Think about the spirit descending and remaining on someone to do a job. Here's what Moses said. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So there's a pattern in the Old Testament where the person that God intended to use would have the Holy Spirit put on them uniquely to do a job. So there's a pattern. But I also mention that Jesus, in the same way, in in this pattern, is unique. It wasn't quite the same as the men from Numbers 11. He came uniquely to have the Holy Spirit in an unlimited kind of way. The Spirit never left him. He'd say elsewhere in Matthew, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. The Spirit was with Jesus in a way in which he was with no one else. And then beyond that, he would give the Holy Spirit to all God's people. Jesus is the one identified by and identified with the Spirit. Finally, number six, Jesus is the Son of God, verse 34. This is the very title, the very relationship that Jesus mentioned earlier in John chapter 10 in last week's sermon text. Do you call me a blasphemer because a blasphemer because I say I'm the Son of God? And John says, there's the Son of God. Again, it's audacious, it's bold, it would have been shocking. These were a very religious people, a very earnest people in their religion. It would have been shocking language. And as the record stands, this is the witness of John the Baptist. He's the son of God. So if we summarize the Baptist's message, it's the exact same message as John the writer. They have the same message. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He has a unique relationship with the Father. Now the Baptist, here's his message. I want no part of the spotlight for myself. The Lord himself, the Messiah, has come, Isaiah chapter 40. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's eternal. He existed before me. He's the one who has the Holy Spirit and who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. He is God's Son. Now, Let's go back to John 10. Let's go back to that other side of the Jordan, not that far away from Jerusalem, back out into the wilderness. That stunning message that John the Baptist preached is the same one which many people, it says there, believed. Even though John didn't do any signs, we now can see 10 chapters in that everything he said proved true about Jesus. So the way John the writer sets it up, the leadership in Jerusalem rejects him. And now you have the defense. Everything the Baptist said about him was the truth. So as we conclude, let's go back to Dr. Church, the traitor. We're gonna make two comparisons with his trial. 
and compare them with Jesus's trial. First, a distinction, a difference. With Dr. Church's trial, the defendant is the one who has a lot at stake. Dr. Church is the defendant. He's afraid he's gonna be put to death. He certainly would get jail time if he was convicted. He's got skin in the game. The defendant is the one with a lot to risk. But it is not that way with Jesus's trial. The defendant's fate, Jesus's fate, does not hang in the balance. The fate of the jury hangs in the balance and you are in the jury box. The highest court in the universe, the all-knowing, holy, righteous God knows full well that everything John the Baptist said about Jesus is true. Jesus has no skin in the game. To put it as directly as I can, if you conclude that Jesus is a sham, Jesus loses nothing. He loses nothing. He's not on trial. You are not his judge. We don't get to stand above his word and determine what we think is true and what is not. You cannot put him on trial. But the jury has a lot at stake. You have skin in the game. What you determine affects you eternally. It can't be overstated. So I'm asking you, do you find yourself today in agreement with the religious leadership in Jerusalem who would say, he's a sham. I don't believe what he's saying. He's leading the people astray. He should not talk like that. Look at all these deceived people believing in him. Are you there? Or you find yourself down in verse 41 and 42. You find yourself today saying, Everything the Baptist said about him was true. That's the way John the writer closes John chapter 10 with that kind of challenge. And second, a second comparison between Dr. Church's trial and Jesus' trial, this time a similarity, something similar. Remember that it was 150 years before the definitive proof arose showing that Dr. Church was guilty. 150 years. That means nobody in that Massachusetts courtroom had the evidence, the definitive evidence, to prove that he was guilty. When the evidence came out, all of them were dead. And yet, in the moment, they had to make a decision about what to do. But it wasn't really like that for the people in John chapter 10. They had gotten a lot more evidence after their first hearing. They heard in John chapter one, and by the time three years or 10 chapters has elapsed, they've seen a lot. They've heard a lot. They've gotten a lot more definitive proof. They'd seen the signs that God was with Jesus. They had the advantage of getting to see with their eyes, but it won't go that way for you. You won't get the advantage of being able to wait it out and see for your eyes, see with your eyes, pardon me. As of this morning, everybody in the room has heard the testimony of John the Baptist and from the scriptures, you've heard. But the Bible is crystal clear. God will not offer you sight. 
as a way for deciding whether or not you'll believe in Jesus. He will not give it to you. When sight comes, it's too late. And Jesus is the one who talks like this. Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. God won't give you sight. It'll be like it was in Noah's day. There's no waiting it out to make a decision some other time once you've seen a little bit more. The people in Noah's day had seen Noah building the ark. They knew, presumably, that Noah believed a judgment was coming. But they threw a thick blanket over their conscience to muffle the sound. I don't want to deal with that. And then Noah went into the ark and God shut the door. And at that moment, when God himself shut the door of the ark, he sealed it off, no one else was getting in. At that moment, it was too late. And then it started raining. And then the rain turns into puddles. And the waters got higher and higher. And people said, I'm getting out of here. And they get up to the high ground to wait this one out. And then the high ground itself got smaller and smaller as the water inches higher. Water's now up to their ankles. They're in a crowd. Water's up to their chest. And then it was over. There was just silence over the whole earth. And Jesus said, it's going to be like that when he comes. It's too late when he comes. God's already shut the door when he comes. The first time he came to give up his life on a cross as an innocent lamb suffering in our place, but the next time, and suddenly, he'll come in judgment. You won't get to believe later. Later is too late. But if you find yourself God-given faith to say, everything that John the Baptist said and everything that my God has said is true about Jesus. You won't get sight before he comes, but when he comes, God will give you sight. You will see. You will see with your eyes. Faith will be turned to sight all the waiting will be fulfilled when you see him. The scripture says every eye will see him, will be just like he is, for we'll see him as he is, face to face, visibly. So we sang the songs, and I'm gonna close with them and let them be an encouragement to you. God won't give you sight until the last day. Today, by faith, we wait We wait for his coming, but the day will come when he will give you sight. Then one day I'll see him as he sees me. Face to face, the lover and the loved. No more words, the longing will be over. There with my precious Jesus. Now the other song.
that we sang. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Lord, we look forward to that day when faith becomes sight. We're sobered to remember that when Jesus said, every eye will see him, he meant every eye, those who would see it in judgment and those who see it with faith. So we pray for those who are facing judgment, who are throwing that thick blanket over their conscience saying later, Lord, we ask that you would pierce to the heart, through the blanket, irrefutably, convict of sin, pierce to the heart, give the gift of repentance, turn people from sin and self and unbelief and unto Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we pray for your people, the saints. I pray that you would enable us to live like Hebrews 11, by faith. to have the assurance of things hoped for, the rock-solid conviction of things we can't yet see, and make us wait for Jesus' return from heaven. Our glorious King, all is ransomed home to bring. And then make us sing on that day, Lord. Keep us faithful till then, and make us sing on that day. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.